Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus, Lord, our Savior. Lord, certainly our sin took him to a cross. But it was his love for us that kept him on that cross. And Heavenly Father, tonight I pray that Jesus Christ would be both Lord and Savior to everyone listening. Lord, for the person in need of salvation and redemption, I pray that he would be that Savior. For the person who is in need of comfort and hope, I pray that Jesus, our great comfort, would comfort them. That Jesus, our great doctor, would heal them. That Jesus, the eternal Jesus, the Jesus who occupies eternity, who forgives us and reconciles us and then molds us and shapes us and then forwards us into eternity. Heavenly Father, I pray that Jesus this evening would be all in all. And Lord, for the person who finds themselves in circumstances of battle, waging a war against enemies that seem overwhelming. Lord, I pray that Jesus, the warrior, would fight our battles and win that war. In Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 63. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered, and there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. According to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them, according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old but they rebelled and grieved his holy spirit 
So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness, that they might not stumble as a beast goes down into the valley, and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious, Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name, O Lord. Why have you made us stray from your, your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servants' sake the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it, but a little while our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. Isaiah promises a future, glorious kingdom. But before the kingdom comes, there will be a time of sifting, a a time of tribulation, a day of vengeance. When we read things, we want those things to make sense to us, don't we? Haven't you ever read the Bible and you go, what am I reading? What is this saying? When you tell a story, you'll probably typically tell the story from the beginning to the middle to the end. Remember when you were trying to tell a story to your parents and your mother made you stop and said, look, just start from the beginning. And so when you read about this glorious kingdom and all of a sudden in the book of Isaiah, it backtracks and it talks about a time before that time. It can be confusing in our reading. But that's exactly what is happening. Because in this particular chapter, the Messiah reveals himself as the coming king who is also the warrior who will defeat all of his enemies in what's known as the Battle of Armageddon. Some of you are familiar with that. You've heard about the Battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon is that final battle that will take place when human history under the government of human leaders comes to a cataclysmic close. So why then? Why will there be a battle? Why will it take place? And why will it take place at a specific time? Because that is the place, the battle of Armageddon will be the place where Jesus returns, where Jesus intervenes, where Jesus stops the wickedness and he brings a halt to the madness brought on by sinful human beings. In that day, the wickedness and the sin 
will face the blazing glory of a holy God and sin and wickedness are going to be consumed. As a matter of fact, Jesus will return. The wicked will be doomed. Those who don't have a right relationship with God, as unpleasant as this sounds, is going to spend an eternity in hell. But the righteous of the earth will see a savior and they will receive the mercy of God. This has been throughout the Bible called the great day of God's vengeance and the day of God's mercy. It is a preview of the picture of Armageddon. Chapter 63 begins with what might seem a dialogue. We might even say an interview. And what's interesting about the passage is it's ta- the interview is taking place after the battle has already been fought. Imagine you could transport yourself into history future and there's a prophetic Larry King show. And all of a sudden there is Jesus on Larry King live. And all of a sudden you hear, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? In other words, the cataclysmic circumstances of humanity is now coming to an amazing close But the battle has already been fought. The battle is already over. And that shouldn't shock you or surprise you. And even when you read that, as much as you want to know about the details of the battle, the battle is already over with. The blood-soaked Savior is taking questions from the prophet Isaiah. And whatever that means, it has to mean that the battle is coming, that the battle is certain, that the battle is unavoidable. It can't be stopped. The nations that have sought to destroy Israel and the people of God will be crushed by the Lord himself. And so in verse one, when it says, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. The answer, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So who is asking the question? It would appear that it's Isaiah. And Isaiah is asking on behalf of the Jews who have been delivered. But he's speaking for all of the covenant people in every generation. And what they're asking is, how do you explain this? How do you explain the power and the strength and the glory of a deliverer? Because the sum and the substance of all of humanity that arrays itself against God is completely and utterly destroyed. He's not an alien from another planet. He's not a sojourner from some distant galaxy. He is the conqueror of all who oppose him. But he's an army of one. Now, this is what's interesting because the Bible paints a picture of Jesus coming back. Now, and I want you to get this. Jesus is coming back with angels. Jesus is coming back with the Old Testament saints. Jesus is coming back with the New Testament saints. Jesus is coming back with the Christians in every generation. Jesus is coming back with the martyrs from the tribulation. But he's the only one who fights. The battle is over. (laughs) By the way, why does he come from Edom and Basra? 
Well, remember, Edom is the traditional home of Esau. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you'll remember that there were two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Basra is the capital of the kingdom that was occupied by Esau and that became the land of Edom. Edom in the Bible is that group of people that figuratively stands in opposition to the things of God. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 29, verses 5 through 7, there's a clue that's given to us concerning this battle. It says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire, it says in, in Psalm 29, 5 through 7. And then in verse uh, Psalm 29, verse 8, it says, The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The wilderness, the, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Now, this becomes important. The geography becomes important because the final battle that brings human history to a close begins in Lebanon, continues through the wilderness of Kadesh, which, by the way, is the center area of Basra. The distance from Syrian and Lebanon to Basra and Edom is about 200 miles or 1,600 furlongs. Do you know why that's important? Because in Revelation chapter 14, verse 20, it says, And the winepress was trampled outside the city, speaking of Jerusalem, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. From Lebanon to Jordan... When the final battle takes place, humanity will array itself against Israel and against the people of God and against the coming king, and they're going to get wiped out. As a matter of fact, I don't have time to go into this in detail, but there are eight stages of Armageddon. Um... I'm just going to quickly give you an overview. Number one, the assembling of the allies of the Antichrist will take place. That's found in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Then number two, the destruction of Babylon, which is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. Then the fall of Jerusalem, that's Micah chapter 4, verse 11. The armies of the Antichrist at Basra is spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 13. The national regeneration of Israel is spoken of in Psalm 79 verses 1 through 13, Isaiah 64 verses 1 through 12, which we'll talk about next week, Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 through 13, Joel chapter 2 verse 28, the second coming of Jesus Christ that's spoken of in Isaiah 34 verses 1 through 7, um, Chapter 63, which we're looking at right now, verses 1 through 3. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 13. The battle from Basra to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 20. And then the victory ascent upon the Mount of Olives. Joel chapter 13, or excuse me, Joel chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And you can look this up later. The whole point being that in this climactic battle, there's a series of events that take place that literally, quite literally, bring human history to a close. 
J. Vernon McGee suggests that the nations that are mentioned throughout the book of Isaiah represent or symbolize some sort of principle or philosophy or system. And as we've looked at the book of Isaiah and we've looked at the different countries that are mentioned in the book of Isaiah, you'll note Babylon becomes a type of false religion or idolatry. Assyria, a type of utter ruthlessness. Philistia, a type of extreme pride. Moab, a type of formal religion. Damascus becomes a type and a picture of compromise. Ethiopia, a type of the industrial military complex. Egypt, a type of the world that stands in opposition to God. Arabia becomes a type and a picture of war. Tyre becomes a type and a picture of big business. But what do you suppose Edom is? Edom becomes a type and a picture of the flesh. Human beings. The flesh, remember what we've been talking about in John's Gospel, is everything that is opposed to God and Christ. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Jesus. And God will judge the nations. He will judge false religion. He will judge idolatry. He will judge pride. He will judge formal religion. He will judge the compromised life. He will judge the industrial military complex that stands in opposition to the things of God. He will judge the world. He will judge the economic system that stands in opposition to God. And he will judge the flesh. And in verse 2 it says, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? The picture is a picture of a Savior who's covered in blood. It's not a pretty picture. But the Bible paints a picture of the Messiah covered in blood. And the blood, listen carefully, doesn't belong to Him. This isn't His shed blood on the cross. This isn't the blood that he dies on the cross in order to forgive you and save you. This is the blood-soaked garments that he is wearing as he judges his enemies. Jesus is good. But Jesus is dangerous. Do you know why he's dangerous? Because he will judge sin. The Bible pictures of him as covered in a white robe. By the way, if you've ever been in the military, do you think the military normally uses white robes for battle? Usually, if you're in the army, if you are outfitted for battle, what color do you wear? You wear dark clothing so that you can be easily camouflaged. Most people in their right mind wouldn't wear a white garment. But Jesus will, because he's absolutely righteous. Jesus is a warrior, but don't ask him to fight for you. Don't ask him to fight for your cause, because he has a cause all of his own. The moment that he shows up, the year of redemption has come, and Jesus has come to rid the planet of every speck, of every particle, of every grain of sinful leaven. Just like in the Old Testament, during the time of the Passover, when they would go throughout the house and they would search for every sign and every particle of leaven, He is going to remove it from the earth. 
Human wickedness, human greed, human selfishness, and all who oppose God are going to be wiped out. It's not a pretty picture. It might even be a little bit unsettling to you. But you never realize just how powerful an image it is until you've been taken captive. I want you to just think for a moment and imagine that you're living in World War II and that you're a Jew in a Nazi concentration camp and you haven't eaten for several months and most of your family is dead and the threat of death has been hanging over you forever. And now all of a sudden an American GI shows up covered with blood, chewing Wrigley's spearmint gum. With Hershey's candy bars and a machine gun, how does he look to you? As he takes the gun and he shoots off the lock of your prison camp, what are you thinking? What's going through your mind? You don't care that he's grimy and you don't care that he's covered in blood. Now, some of you might be naive and ignorant and might think, did you have to kill all those Nazis? Why didn't you just reason with them? Why didn't you try to explain them that the world could be a better place? Because sometimes the battle between right and wrong and good and evil is a battle to the death. Where one person will live and one person will die. Look at verse 3. I've trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. When he says that, that he has trodden the winepress alone, do you know what that means? No one is with him. There is no godly nation. There is no godly nation that stands in opposition to those who will oppose God and oppose all of God's people. And the Lord's response gives us a clue. As a matter of fact, in Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 16, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there because I'm going to read from Joel chapter 3, verse 9, all the way to verse 16, where it says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go down, come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars diminish their brightness. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. 
The picture is a picture of a human race gathered together to finally and fully defy God, and they're completely destroyed. The picture is also given to us in Revelation chapter 14, verse 19. And 20, where it says, so the angel, the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came up out of the winepress up to bridles, horses bridles for 1,600 furlongs, 200 miles of human blood up to the, to the bridle of a horse. Revelation 19.13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And here is the name. He is called the Word of God. Who do you suppose this guy is? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 4. Isaiah 63, 4, for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. I want you to think carefully for just a moment. There are many, many people who don't believe that God will ever, ever, ever judge the earth. There are people who believe that God won't judge the nations, that he won't judge the earth. That he won't fully and finally eradicate wickedness and sin. They don't even believe that he'll judge them. Not really. They believe that somehow, someday, that they will escape. But the Lord says, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. Make no mistake about it. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of retribution. There is a day of equilibrium. There is a day when every wrong thing will be made right and every wicked thing will be will be cleansed. And the Lord will rule and reign. And he gives two reasons for executing the judgment, because that's the right thing. The, the right thing to ask isn't. Will God judge? The, 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 the right question to ask is, well, why judge? Number one, his vengeance is against evil. And number two, his redemption or deliverance is for his people. He will make right all wrong. He will redeem and deliver those who are oppressed. God is holy. And God is love. His holiness demands the execution of righteousness or judgment. And his love, his love demands that he redeem and save the people who be, that belong to him. The wicked, the lawless, the rebel has to bear the consequence of their wicked behavior. They have to pay the penalty for breaking God's law. They have to pay the penalty for denying God's savior. And if you're asking the question, if for some reason there's a little voice whispering inside of your head, if the voice whispering inside of your head is saying, is the lamb angry with me? Let's talk about it. 
Is the, angry, is the Lamb of God angry with you? Should you fear the wrath of the Lamb? My answer is going to probably surprise you. If the Lamb of God is angry with you, you deserve it. You deserve His anger. You deserve the smoldering anger of the wickedness of the sin and rebellion that constantly taunts the true and the living God that your sin doesn't matter, that your wickedness doesn't matter, that your behavior doesn't matter. Because if the Old Testament teaches anything and if the New Testament teaches anything, it is that redemption and sin cannot occupy the same space. Jesus has become both Lord and Savior and Redeemer. He has redeemed you out of His mercy and His love, and you don't have to remain in your sin. The Lamb of God is meek, and the Lamb of God is gentle, and the Lamb of God is humble. And if the Lamb of God is meek and gentle and humble, if He's angry with you, it's because you've elected to remain in your sin. It's because you've rejected His love. It's because you've spurned His tenderness. It's because you've said no to His mercy. It's because you've said that His forgiveness doesn't really matter. So He comes for those two reasons. To execute judgment on evil and to deliver, to redeem to restore, to liberate everyone who is under the oppression of wickedness. By the way, are you hurt? Are you angry? Ray Ortland, in his wonderful commentary on this particular passage in Isaiah, it's entitled God Saves Sinners, he writes, and I quote, If you've been hurt... If you've suffered injustice, if you are angry, let the Lamb fight for you. You can either churn inside or let the Lamb defend you to the degree that you deserve His defense. Paul wrote, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it up to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's quoting from Romans chapter twelve, verses nineteen through twenty, when it says in another translation, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says, Give place to wrath. It's Paul's way of writing, Believe. I want you to believe. I want you to believe with all of your heart that there is a judgment day. I want you to believe in judgment. When he says, Give place to wrath, it's his way of saying, Make sure that in your theology, you have a way of thinking that God will right every wrong. And then it's his way of saying, by the way, because God will right every wrong, you don't have to. 
you don't have to be the instrument that God uses to right every wrong. The Lord will do that. And look what it says in verse 5. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury. It sustained me. When he says that there was no one else to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Remember what it says in the New Testament when Jesus is asked by the disciples, what will when will you come and what will the sign of your coming be? And remember, Jesus says, Will the Son of Man, when He returns to the earth, will He find righteousness anywhere? I think that Isaiah answers the question, for the most part. There's no one who will side with Jesus. There will will be no one, or few, if you will, who will side with Jesus. That He will be the one who executes judgment. He will be the one who reconciles all things to Himself. In the last days of human history, God looks. There's no one to help, but the day is coming and it's almost here when the vast majority of the world's population will oppress and seek to destroy the tiny remnant of those who are left who love the Lord. Those who love Jesus Christ. Those who love God and serve God and obey God. The persecution will grow. The oppression will get greater. The righteous will become smaller and smaller and smaller. The unrighteous will become greater and greater and greater. Just like the Egyptians during the captivity of the Jews in Egypt when they sought to destroy all of the children when God was going to raise up Moses. Just like Haman in the book of Esther when he tried to stamp out the children of Israel. In the day of the Lord, God will raise His hand in judgment. He will raise His hand in might. He will raise His hand in fury. And He will crush the nations. Every evil nation will be made drunk with the wine of his wrath and their blood will be poured out on the ground. And you know what? Most of your family, most of your friends, and most of the world in which you live in, they think it's a joke. They think judgment is a joke. They see a man with a sandwich board walking on the streets of New York with the words emblazoned, repent. And they laugh. And they think, this guy's a nut. Grace precedes judgment. But judgment will come. The Bible says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Romans chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, But to those who are self-seeking, to those who do not obey the truth, to those but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, it was Paul's way of saying your special friendship and relationship, you being called Jew or Greek, your being 
the inheritor of a great religious tradition, your being the inheritor of a great intellectual tradition isn't going to spare you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You know what? I only took a few scriptures. Do you know how many scriptures there are like what I just read to you? I looked up 27 of them. I don't have time to read them all. Have I left you with the impression that there's a real judgment and a real judgment is coming upon a real world that stands in opposition to God? We're going to get to the good news in just a moment. Because that's the description of the battle of Armageddon. His victory over the nations. And by the way, like I said, the battle is described in Revelation chapter 19, um, verses 11 through 21. I probably shouldn't read it, but I am going to. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, Followed him on white horses. Proof positive there are animals in heaven. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Do you know where that image from the book of Revelation comes from? It's from here in Isaiah. You all know the song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. How does the rest of it go? He is marching. He is tramping out where the grapes of wrath are stored or something like that. What it rhymes up to is it equates to judgment. And look what it says in verse 7. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. According to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his multiple, multiple loving kindnesses. It's in sort of a extravagant plurality, if you will. The verse begins with the loving kindness and it ends with the loving kindness. Loving kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, and it speaks of the nature and the character of God to redeem. Aren't you glad that that verse is there right about now? I will mention the loving kindness. Thank God you're ready to mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. Why is there a day of vengeance? Remember what I said. The judgment of evil and those who do evil will result in deliverance for those who are oppressed by evil. And that's the other side of the story. With the judgment of 
the wicked comes the liberation of the righteous. God is love and God is holy. The love of God does not deny the holiness of God. Right cannot triumph unless wrong is put down. Good cannot be elevated unless wickedness is destroyed. We live in a world that's desperately wrong. We live in a world that is desperately wrong and the Bible refers to this world in such a way that in its rebellion, in its sin, it stores up the wrath of God. Alfred Martin writes, in his judgment, furthermore, he is not harsh or arbitrary or cruel, but is still long-suffering and merciful and gracious. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. God, even in his judgment, is not harsh. He is not arbitrary. He is not cruel. He's long-suffering. And merciful towards me and towards you. If you ever have the courage and the honesty to do a self-assessment, you'll discover something. You're not getting what you deserve. You have been given an extraordinary opportunity. And that's to walk in His love and to walk in His grace and to walk in His loving kindnesses. There's a reason why the writer says, I'm going to mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord because in that kind of sea of of holy and righteous and just judgment comes the awful consequence of the fact that each and every one of us deserve to go to hell and none of us have to because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. For many of you, the gospel, the good news, has just been a religious story told over and over and over again till you're sick of hearing it. And you've forgotten what it means to receive good news. You're a sinner, you deserve to go to hell, but you're not going to go to hell, you're going to go to heaven. If a doctor said to you, Hey, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Okay? Tell me the good news. You have two days to live. What? How could that possibly be good news? If that's the good news, what in the world is the bad news? I should have told you yesterday. Yeah, that is like really bad news. But if the doctor says to you, remember the initial diagnosis that we gave, that you have cancer and that you only have six months to live? Well, guess what? We misread your x-ray. And you're going to live. You're not going to die. Do you realize that every morning that you wake up and you continue to live, it becomes a day and an opportunity for you to love and serve the Lord. 
You know what you are? You are what you are. You are what you do most of the day. You are what you do throughout most of the day. You are what you do throughout most of the day. But what do you do when you get up? What do you talk about? What do you think about? When you open books, what do you read about? When you open your mouth, what do you talk about? When you enter into friendships and relationships, what is on your mind and what is on your heart? What is on your speech? What is it that you're living for throughout the day? What is it that you're preoccupied about? Grace spurned can only lead to judgment. But grace embraced leads to liberation and joy. Look what it says in verse 8. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their Savior. He's describing a picture of a group of people that he desires to redeem. These are my people. Surely these children won't lie. I will become their Savior. In verse 9, in all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He bore them. He carried them. All the days of old, from verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter, a litany is going to unfold. A history of the people of God. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. God basically and specifically says when they were afflicted, when they were persecuted, when they were hurt, he was afflicted. In your pain, in your sorrow, when you've been mistreated, when you've been taken advantage of, when, when you've been given a raw deal, God sees it and cares about it. And the angel of his presence saved them because the children of Israel would cry out to God. They would enter into rebellion and disobedience. They would cry out to God and then God would deliver them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. You know, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because I know that there's been times in your life where you've walked away from people that seemed unredeemable and there was nothing lovely about them at all. But God loved his people. Just like he loves you. And he bore them. Look what it says in verse 9. And he carried them all the days of old. You know why he bore them and carried them? Because they couldn't walk themselves. Because they couldn't live this life on their own. Just like you can't live this life on your own. It is the Lord who bears you. It is the Lord who carries you. The Lord had made every effort to redeem them in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their disobedience, in spite of their wayward lives. He identifies with them in the distress. He identifies with them in suffering. He saves them. He redeems them. He carries them. And in his mercy and his unfailing love, he never gives up on them. Just like you. But look what it says in verse 10. But they rebelled. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Now, I want you to understand something. When the people rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit, God disciplined them. 
like a father disciplines a child. Now, for some of you, when you hear those words, like a father disciplines the child, what may come into your mind is an image or a picture of child abuse. Because maybe your father didn't discipline you in a way that was godly and that was consistent. Maybe your father or your mother didn't discipline you in a way that was appropriate. But God always disciplines his children in a way that is appropriate, even though the hand of his discipline seems strong, even though it was perceived to be severe. Sometimes it was so severe that they perceived God as an enemy. In other words, the discipline of God was so profound and so severe that they that they felt like God was against them. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought God was against you? That the pain and the problems and the issues were so bad that you thought that God was against you. And so you begin to fight against the Lord. Well, that's what happened in the Old Testament. They misunderstood the discipline of the Lord. And because they misunderstood the discipline of the Lord. And because the Lord was constantly seeking to correct them. They would rebel even against his discipline. Just like sometimes you might rebel against his discipline. But remember what the New Testament says. The Lord disciplines every child. The very fact that you receive discipline is a reality that God is your God and he is your father. The neighbor doesn't discipline your child. You do. Strangers don't get to spank my children. I get to. And strangers don't get to spank his children. And look what it says. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? The Lord's discipline was intended to get the people to remember where they came from and return to the Lord. The discipline was sometimes effective. The people remembered God's love. They remembered his mercy. They remembered Moses. They remembered that he was a leader, a shepherd. They remembered the Holy Spirit. They remembered the awesome power of God to divide the seas. They began to remember all of the all of what God had done in their life. And that becomes part of the point when you begin to remember All that God has done in your life, how he saved you, how he redeemed you, how he forgave you, how he washed your sins. Do you remember those early moments of time when you first became a Christian? Those sweet moments when God displayed his power, when you in childlike faith would pray a prayer and then God would answer your prayer. In verse 12, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to take for himself an everlasting name. He's going through this. They're going down a memory lane, if you will. In verse 13, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. The idea being when God led them, it was God leading them step by step. And when God was leading them step by step, he kept them from stumbling as long as they followed the leadership of God. Just like you. 
God leading you step by step, helping you put one foot in front of the other as you follow the leadership of the Lord. And you'll notice something in your experience as a Christian when you put one foot in front of another as you've walked with your heavenly father by the power of the Holy Spirit, being led by the spirit. Has God taken you to a place where you didn't belong or shouldn't be? And then in verse 14, as a beast goes down into the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. You know what a beast is? It's unthinking. This is an animal that isn't smart. You didn't think it through. Haven't you ever paused and said, Lord, if I would have thought this through, I probably wouldn't have gone to that school. If I thought this through, I I wouldn't have married that person. Lord, what was I thinking? Lord, if I had thought of this through, I wouldn't have taken the job. If I had thought this through, I wouldn't have done this. If I had thought this through, I wouldn't have done that. But guess what? God and the Spirit of the Lord Even though you find yourself in unthinking circumstances, even though you might think it's an unthinking circumstance, all the while what you thought was stupid and unthinking, God is still leading and guiding, loving and serving and making himself available to you. And then in in verse 15, it says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and the mercy and your mercies toward me? The reason why he says look down from heaven is because that's where God is. He's up. Does that mean literally, physically and geographically? If you're on a, a globe, is God up from the North Pole or South Pole or from this continent or that continent? It becomes a type and a picture that God is always up. He is separate, elevated, different from his creation. He's up. And it says, Doubtless, you are our Father. The believing Israelite, the person who followed the Lord, the Lord was a father to his people. Our Redeemer, from everlasting is your name. O Lord, Why have you made us stray from your ways and harden our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. I think that the tribes of the inheritance is a reference to those groups of people who were scattered in the north during the Assyrian invasion. But he's basically praying. Oh, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? The truth, the Lord didn't make you stray. And the Lord didn't harden your heart. You strayed and hardened your heart every time you said yes to sin and no to the Father. The truth is, we find ourselves in rebellion and disobedience, but all the while, God is calling us to return. In verse 18, it says, Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. 
our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. I think that this is a prophetic picture of, of the reality that the Jews are displaced. They're removed from Judea and Jerusalem. The temple is destroyed and they're trodding down. The adversaries have trodden down the sanctuary. But guess what? The sanctuary gets rebuilt. And then in verse 19, we have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who never called you by name. The idea being that in the wickedness and the rebellion and the disobedience and the displacement, they begin to act like people who never, ever really knew the Lord. And the type and the picture for the Christian is for the Christian who goes to church, reads his or her Bible, forms friendships and relationships, but now all of a sudden they begin to live a life, they begin to think and act and respond as if God was never a part of their life. It wasn't the Assyrians and it wasn't the Babylonians who defeated Israel. It was when the children of Israel said no to God and yes to sin you may think that your enemy is this you may think that your enemy is that you might think that drugs or alcohol or sexual circumstances or guilt or anger or this or that is your enemy the world and its enticements certainly are an enemy your flesh is certainly an enemy your Enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But the world and the flesh and the devil in their combined wickedness can't remove you from the loving kindness and the mercy and the grace that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. John Oswalt writes, There can be no negotiation with sin. For it is the sworn enemy of all that God is. It is sin that killed the Son of God. It is sin that will kill all God's creatures. The idea that we can have negotiated a peace where God holds one part of the creation while sin holds another is ludicrous. In the end, either the righteousness of God will rule the world or sin will. That's an important statement. I'm going to repeat it. In the end, either the righteousness of God will rule the world or sin will. The same is true of the human heart. The thought that we can have forgiveness of sin by the blood of Jesus while continuing to practice that which killed him is ludicrous. There will come a time. There will come a time when Jesus will fully, finally, completely, permanently eliminate sin. In the next chapter, Isaiah is going to point this out. Their uncleanness, their indifference, their failure to to submit to the Lord. I want to close with yet another Bob Dylan song. (laughs) Because it makes so much sense in light of this this passage. Listen, some of you are familiar with the song. It goes like this. Go ahead and talk about him because he makes you doubt. Because he has denied himself the things that you can't live without. Laugh at him behind his back just like the others do. 
Remind him of what he used to be when he comes walking through. He's the property of Jesus. Resent him to the bone. You got something better. You've got a heart of stone. Stop your conversation when he passes on the street. Hope he falls upon himself. Oh, won't that be sweet? Because he can't be exploited by superstition anymore. Because he can't be bribed or bought by the things that you adore. He's the property of Jesus. Resent him to the bone. You got something better. You've got a heart of stone. When the whip that's keeping you in line doesn't make him jump. Say he's hard of hearing. Say he's just a chump. Say he's out of step with reality as you try to test his nerve. Because he doesn't pay no tribute to the king that you serve. He's the property of Jesus. Resent him to the bone. You got something better. You've got a heart of stone. Say that he's a loser because he got no common sense. Because he don't increase his worth at someone else's expense. Because he's not afraid of trying. Because he don't look at you and smile. Because he doesn't tell you jokes or fairy tales. Say he's got no style. He's the property of Jesus. Resent him to the bone. You got something better. You got a heart of stone. You can laugh at salvation. You can play Olympic games. You think that when you rest at last, you'll go back from where you came. But you've picked up quite a story. You've changed since the womb. What happened to the real you? You've been captured. But by whom? He's the property of Jesus. Resent him to the bone. You've got something better. You've got a heart of stone. There is a world that stands in opposition to God and the things of God. They'll hate you and they'll resent you. They'll persecute you. And for some of you, they'll kill you. There is a Lord. He is in heaven. He's coming back. Grace precedes judgment. But judgment will come. Make no mistake about it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that this world won't last. Lord, we know that sin won't last. Lord, we know that wickedness won't last. Lord, we pray that when we embrace sin and we embrace wickedness, Lord, that we're embracing those things that have absolutely no hope of surviving. Lord, I pray that we would come to that place where we would realize that sin and redemption can't dwell in the same heart. Lord, we've been redeemed. Lord, I pray that for the sinner, you would become Savior. For the sick, you would become the healer. And for the person who's bitter, for the person who is angry, for the person who's fighting in a battle, Lord, that they need you to fight for them. 
Lord, I pray that you would be that warrior who overcomes sin, who destroys wickedness. Lord, we pray that you would fulfill your promise that you will make it right on your terms according to your timing that Lord we can trust you that Lord vengeance is yours you will repay in Jesus name Amen